All right, if you have a Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 12. We're beginning a, a new series that we, we try to do at least once every year that is around the theme of being the church. So we talk a lot about when we think about church, it's not a place we go to or a program we participate in or a personality that we follow. But the church is the people of God saved by the power of God and dwelt with the presence of God and sent with the purposes of God. Think about what it means to be the church. We talk about growing through abiding in Christ, which comes through our personal communion, but also comes through what we call fight clubs, which are just groups of, of, of girls, or groups of guys, gender-based groups that come together on a regular basis to fight sin and suffering by beholding Jesus together through the Word of God. We're going to talk about gathering next week. Why do we gather? Why does it matter to gather as the church? Why does it matter to gather together in our family meals that we have through our missional communities? We'll talk about goat giving, and that includes our, our financial resources, but when we think about what it means to be the church, it's so much more than that. It really is the overflow of the gifts that we've been given from God being used to build up the body of Christ and to serve the world. And we'll talk about going, what it means to be a people that are sent to make disciples, to be disciples and to make disciples in the stuff of everyday life and our everyday mission, but also through our missional communities in a joint common mission. So over these next four weeks, we're going to talk about those things. We're going to do it all through Romans chapter 12. So these next four weeks, if you want to read, study along in your own time, you can know that we're going to be in Romans 12. And this morning, we're talking about growing. We're talking about change. And so Romans 12, 1 and 2, if you'll read along with me. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are here. And we ask that you would help us, God, to be present. We ask you, God, to help us to hear your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to behold the wonder of your truth that is found in Jesus. And we pray that by your spirit, that truth would even more lead us into the freedom that you've given us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. I asked Josiah if I could share this, but sometimes he knows I get a little frustrated with him because he spends some deal of time watching Minecraft tutorial videos. He watches other people playing a video game instead of playing the video game himself. Now, I know this is like super normal now, to watch, like kids are watching other kids play with toys instead of actually playing with the toys themselves. And what I try to say to him is, Josiah, why don't you actually go and play Minecraft? It's okay to watch it, but then go and do it. And he does that sometimes. But if he doesn't do it, if he doesn't practice it, if he doesn't act on it, it can kind of feel to me like, what's the point? What's the point of watching other kids play with toys if you don't go play with toys? What's the point in watching other people play video games if you don't go and play the video games? And I'm sure we could just fill in the blank there with whatever that it is. Maybe it gives you some entertainment. 
Maybe it gives you something to talk about. Maybe it just tweaks your curiosity. Maybe you just like someone else who can do something better than you to watch them do it. So you're thinking like, I couldn't afford that stuff, the mods, whatever it is. I don't know what I'm talking about. I couldn't afford those toys. I couldn't afford that equipment. Whatever it is that you would rather watch somebody else do than you do, you have your reasons. And I guess it's okay when it comes to Minecraft or those things. But as I thought about that and I thought about our text today, what I was convicted of is that's exactly what actually living my own life can look like at times. can have a workout plan. I can watch other people talk about working out, exercising, eating well. But if I don't actually do it, then it's not going to change anything. I'm not going to grow by talking about it or even watching other people do it really well. You could have a reading plan for the new year. You could spend a lot of time researching various ways to read through the Bible or books to read. But the reality is, is if you actually don't read the Bible, then you will not change and grow. Whatever the plan or the idea that you have in any area of your life, you can be the best dreamer in the room, you can be the best researcher in the room, you can watch other people do it, tutorials, we are... We are overwhelmed and flooded with all of the ways that we can be taught and trained to do things better and watch somebody do it. But your goals will not change you. Your habits will change you. I want to say that again. Your goals won't change anything. They won't grow you. It's only your habits. Your habits will win. The people you spend the most time with will win. The culture that you engage with the most will win. The people that you live around the most, whether in real life or through screens, will shape you. And the same is true connected to all of this of what our discipleship can look like. We can watch videos of people preaching, teaching. We can read books about spiritual disciplines. But if we compartmentalize our lives to only listen to people talk about things, if we only come together on a Sunday morning to hear and listen, but we don't live it, then we're not going to grow. So many disciples have their growth stunted because they only listen, but they don't live. They like to watch other people do it. And they like to think, maybe I can't do it. I'm not gifted like that person. I don't have the opportunities like that person does. But I can sit back and, and watch and enjoy it from a distance. But Jesus wants to invite you into something far more deeper. He doesn't want us to just listen or watch the truth and the grace of the kingdom of God, or watch other people do it. He wants us to live it. Paul knows after he's written, and if you're familiar with the book of Romans, these first 11 chapters, he has unpacked the glories of the gospel, of the grace of God, in, in ways that are so deep and rich that he ends chapter 11 just overflowing with praise at the 
incomprehensible and uncomparable glory of God. He says, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. But what He leads us into in chapter 12 and verse 1 is He knows that if they do not live out lives from all of those glories and all of those graces, it will mean little to nothing. The climax of worship is not merely our voiced praise, but Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us the climax of worship is our lives given. If these truths don't take root in their bodies, their hearts, in their minds, then the point will be missed. If we are to grow as disciples, if we are to be shaped as disciples of Jesus and not by the world that we live in, then we cannot merely listen. We cannot merely listen to the gospel. But we must live the gospel. We can't merely listen to Jesus. That's a good start. He who has ears to hear, let him listen. But to be a disciple of Jesus is not just to be with Him and listen to Him. It's to become like Him. It's to do what He did. So how do we move to growth from listening? The first thing is we've got to accept what the posture of growth is. And this may not be what you think when we're defining what change is, what growth is. It really is more about a posture than a process. Notice verse 1. We come in the middle of this verse and he says that we're being called by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And notice this language of present. It means there's going to have to be some intentionality. Just like in the Old Testament, when they brought sacrifices to the tabernacle or to the temple, there was, there was effort that was involved. We'll come back to this, but Dallas Willard says we have to remember that grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. We're a people who underline grace, and we're going to full circle back to that this morning. But sometimes we can forget that our growth does not happen just automatically. The Spirit is at work within us, Paul says in Philippians 2, but we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to present ourselves, our whole selves to God. He says here to present your bodies one person has said it this way, sometimes we've been uh, sort of duped into this hyper-spirituality that in the early centuries of the church was called Gnosticism, and that is that we think that only our spirits matter or our souls matter, but Paul is very clear here to say, it's not just present your spirit, it's not just present your soul, present your bodies, your whole self. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he will remind us that it is your body that is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Scripture teaches us that we are not, that we don't just have bodies, but as humans, we are bodies. And what do we present our bodies as? Notice, we present our bodies as sacrifices. Now, those of us who are familiar with church, this is one of those words that can just, we hear it and it kind of doesn't sink in. We, we don't rightfully sacrifice animals. 
But to these first century Christians from their Jewish background, but even those in this Roman culture, when they heard the word sacrifice, they didn't think, oh, I'm going to give up an hour on my Sunday to come to church. They pictured an animal having its throat slit. They pictured blood running out onto the ground and into the streets. To be told to present yourself as a sacrifice would have not been, oh, that's church talk. It would have been a jarring image. The word literally here also is used as killing. Sacrifices hurt. Sacrifices are costly. Now in the Old Testament, we need to clarify some things here where there were different kinds of sacrifices. Some sacrifices represented forgiveness. But we know because of Jesus who came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is that He is the sacrifice that gives us atonement with God. It's His sacrifice that tore the veil in the temple so that we can boldly approach the throne with confidence in our time of need. So Paul here is not saying you're to be that type of sacrifice. Like you need to go out and give yourself, sort of kill yourself so that you'll be accepted by God. That's not what he's saying. But in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there were also sacrifices that didn't represent forgiveness, but they represented consecration. They represented commitment to God. There was the whole burnt offering that the, off, that the person would bring that would say, God, I, you are first in my life and all that I am goes to you. This is the sacrifice that we are to be through our union with Jesus who is our perfect sacrifice. But what is so amazing here and even more challenging is we're not just called to be sacrifices, but notice living sacrifices. This metaphor really sort of would have pushed the boundaries of what they thought of because they would have thought of a sacrifice as something you go and do. But Paul here through the Spirit is saying the type of sacrifice I'm calling you to is not something you go and do, it's something you now are. Now this is hard for us to hear as people who like to compartmentalize our lives. This is so important that we see this. He's not saying, hey, I want you as a disciple to offer sacrifices. So you decide what part of your day and what part of your week that you're going to give wholly to God. And then you have these other parts of your life that they're yours. No, he's saying you are called to be a living sacrifice. You are called to live on the altar, surrendering yourself fully and wholly to God. Every moment there is breath in your lungs. A continual self-surrender to God. This flies in the face of everything that our culture and world tells us. Our world tells us we're to live for comfort. Our world tells us we're to live for other people's approval. Our world tells us that we need to take control. Our world tells us that we need to win. But Paul here through the Spirit is saying, I, I'm calling you to live in this constant state of sacrifice before God. 
One commentator says to be a living sacrifice is to be fully at God's disposal. It means actively to be willing to obey God in anything He says in any area of life and passively to be willing to thank God for anything He sends in any area of life. It is what Jesus meant when He said that to be His disciple you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and lose your life that you must gain it. If you could see how this is worded in the original language, it, it separates it in our translations a lot. It says living sacrifice is holy and acceptable to God and not to get all nerdy on you, but actually holy and acceptable really line up with living. So this isn't just me thinking this. You can go and study it yourself. So it's, it's a sacrifice that is living, holy, and acceptable. And to be holy sometimes we think means to just do the right thing again. But really, if you read in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were offered God, the utensils that were set apart by God in the temple that were declared holy, to be holy just means to be holy given to God. Fully His. Not holding anything back. And that's what makes it acceptable. In the Old Testament, we see that God often despised sacrifices. He would say, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your hearts. This is how all of this ties together. To be a living sacrifice is shows that you are wholly set apart from God and that you give yourself to Him in a way that pleases Him because He knows that you're not trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. And this is why it says this is your spiritual worship. In various ways that word spiritual could be translated, could be understood. Some think, some think, and it makes sense, it's reasonable, right? It's your reasonable, it's your logical. Like this is the only logical end. Based on all God has done for us in chapters 1 through 11, the only logical response is that because He wholly gave Himself for you in Christ, you would wholly give himself, yourself for Him. But it also has these, these marks, again, of true. And I think these two things can go together. It's only reasonable because that's what true worship is. So it's all of life worship. So what's our summary here? When we ask what change is, it's being defined for us here in a way that maybe is different than we think of. When we think of growth, when we think of change, most of us in here think of a certain type of process where I go from here to here. And it is that. We're going to get to that next. But before change, before growth is a product, a process, or, a, or even a product, it's a posture. And this is where most of us, and I don't even know what to do with it. I've been wrestling with this this week in my own life because I don't want to stand here and be a hypocrite. Change is not, first off, about you getting better at something. So many of us in here would say, man, I wish I didn't struggle with that no more. Man, I wish I could get over that. Man, I wish I could be good at that. And we're putting all of our energies into, into that new goal, right? Into that new process. And I think the Spirit's saying, let's call time out. Before you think about that process, let's talk about your posture. Are you willing to be a living sacrifice?
Are you willing to live on the altar of God as it were, wholly given to him saying, I don't have to be in control. I'm not trying to get the pain of growth over with. I'm not trying to be less dependent on you. I'm not trying to be less needy. I'm not trying to be more comfortable. Working with addicts several times, many times, and trying to get them into rehab to grow and change, sometimes they will say, or often, I'll do anything to change. I'll do anything to get my children back. I'll do anything to not have to eat out of a dumpster. But I'll only go to rehab if they allow me to smoke while I'm there. And you see the lives continue to be ruined. Parents continue to be separated. Friends continue to die. And I found that such statements are normal. Talking to those who are directors of rehab clinics. But I'm not saying that to be judgmental. Because all people in all situations we know are welcome here. That's why we're here. I'm saying that to say, I think we're all like that. In some part of your life, you're probably saying, I would do whatever it takes to grow and change. But I still got to be in control here. I'll do it all, but, but I still got to have my metaphorical cigarette option. You don't know how hard my life is. If I, don't, if I don't keep that, then I won't be able to make it through the growth and the change. When the reality is because you won't give up control, you will never grow and change. And you think, well, because I'm not eating out of a dumpster, it doesn't seem that bad. But it's robbing us of the joy that Jesus has for us. It's robbing others of the gift that you are to this world. Could you only imagine, could we only imagine what God could do through us if we allowed ourselves to be wholly consecrated to Him? If your life wasn't about just getting to the comfortable spot, if growth to you wasn't a process where you get somewhere, but you surrendered yourself to say, this is my life, a living sacrifice. What if you believe that change is not the absence of sacrifice, not a finished product, not just doing better, not just having better thoughts and emotions even, not merely a destination, not just a process, but that change was life as a sacrifice. Change was for God's pleasure and not for others' praise or envy. That it was a continual process. That it was a journey, not in this life a destination. We'll come back to that. It was a posture.
John Ortberg said this, God is not interested in your spiritual life. God is just interested in your life. Change is more about posture than performance. Change is about living as a living sacrifice where all of life is worship. All of life is worship. You are a worshiper. You don't clock in and clock out. You don't get the Jesus stuff over with so you cannot feel guilty. So how do we grow in that? So if that's what change is, it's first of all a posture more than even a process. If that's what growth is, then how does it grow? Well, we've got to see next. Well, it is a process. It's first a posture, but then it's a process. It's a posture over a process, but it's also a process over a product. Again, the habits will win over the goals. Goals don't change us, but habits do. So how does Paul talk about this? Notice verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world. Well, what is this world? This world is the culture that is anti the kingdom of God. One commentator says it this way. I'm going to read this. I don't like reading long things, but this is helpful. The concept of world that Paul uses here does not speak of God's physical creation. That's important to remember. We get that confused. When the Bible talks about the world, it's not talking about the physical creation that God created as good. And it's not even talking about the population of the earth. It's not even specifically saying other people who are unbelievers. Now, both of those things can come under the sway of the world, but the world is the present world system that is under the power of Satan and is hostile to God. It's an evil system, Galatians 1.4, this present evil age that has its own wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2.6, its own standards, 1 Corinthians 3.18, and its own earthly and spiritual rulers, 1 Corinthians 2. And it is ultimately controlled by the God of this age who is Satan, 2 Corinthians 4, who blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they do not see the glory of Christ. It is a floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, and aspirations which constitute a most real and effective power, being the moral or immoral atmosphere which at every moment of our lives we inhale. So there's no escaping it. The world is in the water that we drink. The world is in the air that we breathe. He goes on to say, the world is a structure of presuppositions and values that work at cross purposes with the plans and values of the all-good Creator. Whereas the Creator's goal is to give abundant life to all who receive it, the goal of the world and the God of the world who runs it is to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is the ruler of the world, this system that is against the kingdom. John teaches that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. 1 John 5.19, if you would like to to double-check me on that. Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. Jesus is saying that Satan is at the helm of the entire world system. And it's this world that brings these temptations that even came to Jesus to offer the kingdom of the world, to claim that they belong to him and that he has the power to give them to whom he wants. As the ruler of this world, we remember that Jesus says he is the father 
of lies. The goal of the enemy, the goal of the world, in cooperation with the flesh, the remaining presence of sin in our life, is to get us to live in bondage, in slavery, to the lies of the enemy. And as overwhelming as it may be, those lies are everywhere. It says here for us to not be conformed to the world. Some of your translations may be conformed to the patterns of the world. To be conformed is to be shaped by. I can't remember the guy's name. I think it's J.B. Phillips had a translation of the Bible. But I always remember this when I read this verse. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. It has a mold that it wants to shape you by. It has values, beliefs, worldview, stories, a program, and a word that we sometimes use, it has liturgies. So a liturgy is, is a pattern. It's the work of the people we talk about in the church. We go through it in our service, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If you don't know, that's what we're walking through every Sunday when we gather. It's not just a way to figure out how to do Sunday morning. No, our liturgy is spiritual warfare. That's why we do it. That's why we don't just sing five songs and preach a sermon and go home. We're not saying how we do it's better than anybody, but this is why we do it. Is we know that we are being shaped by a world every day that has liturgies, has habits, through the advertisements you listen to, through, the, through the, just the, the air that you breathe. It is seeking to get you into these patterns that you walk through so that it disciples you to shape our bodies even by these truths, to wire our brains to just assume certain things, to act on certain things, to believe certain things. And we're called to resist this. But resistance is hard. There's sort of a whole book based on this, and I don't agree with everything that it says in this book, but if you're interested in reading more, it's called Escaping the Matrix. And there's a new Matrix movie out, I think. I haven't seen it. Don't endorse it, of course. I haven't seen it. But in, this, in, the, in the story of the Matrix, like you can take the blue pill or the red pill. Somebody help me. Which one wakes you up to reality? Jose, reality. I should have knew you knew it. Red pill, right? Why would anybody not want to take it? Because once you awaken yourself to reality... It's overwhelming to be awakened to what is real and to not just be a human who's plugged into the world system and lives this life that's a lie. To be awakened to reality means now all of life not only is worship, verse 1, but now in a very real sense all of life is warfare. Because all of a sudden now you notice, oh my goodness, I've been brainwashed. I've been brainwashed. But it's also hard because now it means that you don't fit in anymore. Remember, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they don't see reality. And when you step into that reality, not, also do you, not only do you find yourself at war with spiritual forces and powers but now all of a sudden you find that you don't fit in anymore. 
You don't hold the same values, beliefs, worldviews, stories. And you don't want to engage in those same old worldly liturgies that are shaping you, because you know they are now. It can cost you friends. It can cost you family. It can cost you fellowship, sometimes even with others who claim the name of Christ. One commentator, N.T. Wright, says this, The church's foundation documents, to say nothing of its founder himself, were notoriously on the wrong side of history. To not conform to the world means, yes, according to the world's view of history, you will find yourself on the wrong side of the world. He goes on to say, The gospel was foolishness to the Greeks and a scandal to Jews. The early Christians got a reputation for believing in all sorts of ridiculous things, such as humility, chastity, that is, if you don't know that word, moral purity and sexual relationships, resurrection, standing up for the poor, giving slaves equal status with the free, and valuing women more highly than anyone else had ever done. At that time, people thought Christians were crazy for those things, even if some of those may be more acceptable now. But they stuck to their countercultural gospel. If the church had allowed the prime ministers to tell them what the program was, it would have sunk without a trace in 50 years. If Jesus had allowed Caiaphas or Pontius Pilate to dictate the program to him, there wouldn't have been any church in the first place. One of the greatest lies of the devil is, is we've got to save Christianity from its cultured despisers. One of the greatest lies of the devil is, if you want to love your friends, then you need to think like them. But we're called here not to be conformed to the world, but notice to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Be transformed. The grammar here is, is, is powerful. Be transformed. It's both passive, let this happen to you, and it's active. We know that the only way that we are transformed is through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we are called in Ephesians 5 in a similar vein to be filled with the Spirit. There, we've got to put ourselves in the pathway of the active work of the Holy Spirit to be changed. We've got to get ourselves on the road, as it were, that He travels on. We've got to put our, ourselves in the boat and put up the sails that His wind can blow through. We can't light the fire of our transformation. But we've got to put the kindling and the wood on the fire. The way that we are changed is this active trust in the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. Jesus says in John 17 as He prays for us, Father, I pray that You would sanctify them in truth. Sanctify, set them apart as holy. And then He says, Your Word is truth. And in that same Gospel, Jesus says, The truth will set you free. 
And it's that same gospel where Jesus says, Satan is the father of lies. So it all comes together. If you want to be set free from the lies of the world, not be conformed to it, then you have got to set yourself apart for God through the knowledge of the truth that the Holy Spirit then takes in your life and grows you in the freedom that is yours in Christ. It is this way that as Paul talks about in Romans 6 through 8, Romans 5 through 8 that it is, that you become who you are. And that's what growth as a Christian, as a disciple is, is you becoming who you already are. You could even say you becoming who by the power of the Spirit you are already becoming. But it happens through the renewal of your mind. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul talks about a debased mind, a debauched mind, a mind that's given over to the world, and a mind that goes along with the world. But in Christ, we renew our minds. It's not just our, our brains, although that's a part of it, it's our whole selves. It's the deepest level of our intellect, our desires, our will, our imagination, our core that affects all that we are. This word renewal, is, it could also be translated renovation. So think of the home that was built and it had good bones. But it had been deteriorated over the years because it had been lived in by people who didn't care by the elements of a fallen creation. So think of your bodies like that that you were to present to God as living sacrifices. The only way that that body, your whole self, becomes renovated is the, the core operating system has to be reprogrammed to a new set of presuppositions, to a new set of beliefs, to a new vision for life, to a new way of assumptions, so that then you begin in your whole self and your brain and your body to, to see the world differently, to see others differently. And when you do this, then as the verse ends, that's when you can discern what God's will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That is, the, the person who has a renewed mind now has a renewed life where they make new choices. Like you know what to do now. Like, like you, you're a little less lost in the next step in your life because you've been set free. But this is a work in progress. There's a sense in which our holiness and sanctification happens in a positional way through our union with Christ, but it's, it's a process. It's a growth. I heard a story recently of a man who was basically brainwashed by a psychiatrist to disown his family, hand over control of his home and possessions, and basically become his psychiatrist's servant for over 30 years of his life. And the trick of the psychiatrist was not mainly what happened in the office chair, although it was that, it was because he made this guy feel like he was his friend. Because he made this guy feel like that through their relationship, he was being set free. And that he was really growing. 
And he wasted 30 years of his life. Are we aware that there is a more sinister psychiatrist, not being negative about psychiatrists, who are seeking to brainwash you The ruler of this world, this world system wants to brainwash you under the guise of thinking it's your friend. Under the guise of thinking, just like in the garden, that the truth of God is what will bind you. That the truth of God is what's toxic. That the truth of God is what's holding you back from being the true you. We have to fight to not conform to this world, but to be transformed. Everyone in this room is being discipled. Sometimes we say things, and I've said things like that, man, I wish I'd be discipled. And we mean be discipled into Christ-likeness. But everybody in here is being discipled by the world. As much as we would like to think that our lives have neutrality in it, I don't think the Bible teaches a worldview where there's any such thing as neutrality. Like there's nothing that you do that that doesn't matter. If all of life is worship and all of life is spiritual warfare, then there's no timeouts where you go and say, I'm going to get in my little box right now and and just be. Now the lie the enemy is is that that's God's fault. And that God wants you to be miserable. But that just reveals that you're being spiritually formed by the world. One of our our sister churches, The the Crossing, uh, I've created a document that, that says it this way, and this is taken from Dallas Willard and others, that the world is giving us stories that are shaping us. All of you are living within a, in a larger narrative in a story of what you, tells you what is good and what is bad and what is ugly. Some of that's happened from your childhood. Some of that's happened from your experiences in school. Some of that's... Ha- and and what, you have, what we've got to do to not be conformed by that is we've got to become aware of it. If you don't want to be conformed by this world, you've got to understand how it's conforming you at the level of stories you got to do that work on your family origin. you got to do that work on shaping experiences in your life. And we as a church, at the beginning of the year, if you're into getting stuff started at the beginning of the year, we have some resources and people that can help you with that. We have a resource that we've just taken from other places. Nothing's original. It's called a life map that can help you work through the, the most painful experiences of your life on one side and then the, the best experiences and I would say if you did this before, it's good to do it again. I've did it three or four times, and every time I do it, there's different things on it. But those things are shaping you. And, w- and what this document does is you, is you in the first column say, this is what happened. In the second column you write, this is how I felt when that happened. And then the next one, here's where we get to don't be conformed. How did that shape my interpretation of life? How I view God how I view others, how I view myself, and how I view the world. Because it did. It programmed your brain and your body 
to, to see the world that way. And you just need to know it. And then the next column is now, and we got to get here. Let me underline this. Nothing matters if we don't get here. What is the gospel to that interpretation? It's not enough to know how we're in bondage. We've got to know the truth that sets us free. And then we need to talk to other people about it. We didn't become programmed like this by the world alone, and we won't be changed alone. And then our habits have to be changed. You have habits in your life that are shaping you. Man, this is a real challenge to me. If you read your Bible for 15 minutes in the morning, and then you listen to three hours of talk radio, I'm no rocket scientist, but guess which one's probably shaping more of your life? If you, if you listen to 20 minutes of Christian music every week at this gathering, and then you listen to 20 hours of other music during the week, guess which one's shaping you? Now, I know I'm at the risk of sounding like a super fundamentalist right now, but it's just common sense. I'm not saying you got to go listen to Christian music all week, whatever that even means, but are you listening to it with intentionality? Can you listen to it? You may go, what? Disney may be the worst thing for you to go watch. I don't know. But can you discern what is good and acceptable and perfect? Or are you just watching it mindlessly saying, oh, this is nice, it's probably not affecting me. Our habits shape our lives. Our relationships do. In real life or on a screen. This is probably true of me too, so I say this with no judgment. There may be some of you in here who know more about characters on TV shows than you do about people in your missional community or your life. Like more one-liners, more zingers. I know that's true of me. And I'm challenged by that a little bit. It shapes you. Your environment shapes you. We live in Cleveland, Tennessee. We, we, uh, we're, a, I think I can say this, it won't sound wrong. Us, mainly white folks in the South, don't think we have a culture. <laughs> right? We think everybody else has a culture. Everybody else is different. Well, guess what? That's ignorant, first off. We have a culture. We're not the norm in the world. And it shapes us. There's a world system in Cleveland, Tennessee that is wanting to conform us into its image. And we need to, we need to work on figuring out what that is. And then our time and experiences do. So how do we renew our mind in the face of this? And we're running way out of time. So much here. Again, following this uh, thing from the crossing, I just thought was so helpful that they stole from other places because I know them. Is renewal of the mind going to happen first off? This is how Jesus did things. It's, it's going to take teaching. 
So all that I said about we got to live it, not just listen it, doesn't mean that we don't need to listen. The world is teaching you. And we've got to counteract that by renewing our mind with the teaching of God's Word. That comes through gathering and hearing preaching. Hard for me to say that because I'm one I'm doing it, but whether it's me. But, but there's, there's just so many good resources out there you can have access to. There's so many good sermons. There's so many good education opportunities, YouTube, podcasts. There's good things. There's good things that you can listen and learn, and you've got to do that. If our minds and our whole selves are going to be changed, there has to be teaching. But that teaching then has to lead into practice. Because we have so much good information, is we are all conditioned in our world to hear stuff and not do anything about it. I would say we're, that's part of the, probably the Cleveland Christian culture is we're professionals in getting information we don't act on. But if we're going to be changed and have our minds renewed, we can't just think better thoughts, because as James Smith says, we're not brains on a stick. we got to go do it. That's the way that we rewire our brains, is we've got to, we've got to learn it, and then we've got to practice it with our whole selves. So what practices do you need to add to your life? Think of the traditional spiritual disciplines of silence, solitude, Sabbath, Stillness, serving, fasting. Again, those are not like old school things that aren't important. They're so important. And then we need community to change. This is very important for us to hear. The world thinks about community like this. You choose people that you like and who are like you so that you don't have to make any real sacrifices. But the way of Jesus' community is He chooses us and we love the people He's put us in family with. If you want to have your mind renewed, if we want to grow, then we can't say, I'm only going to be friends with people that are (laughs) life-giving. You know, I just just need some people who who aren't so uh, draining. (laughs) Now, like with everything, this can be exaggerated and diminished, right? Right? Jesus is not calling you to say, hey, take home. I need to go make my life as miserable as possible. It's not what we're saying here. I know some of you may hear it that way. It's not what we're saying. But he's just saying, look around at who I'm with. I'm going to love them. And I'm going to grow because that's, he's going to reveal me when I'm in community with other people. Big time, as Daniel says. Big time. We need the Holy Spirit. We need time and hardship. But what we remember in this point is that growth is first a posture, second it is a process, but the process is over the product. Uh, We're going to do communion a little different this morning due to the status of everything, so if you're super worried about time. Uh, The the last thing on that point, because I've got to get to this next one, is I don't 
I don't like talking about football, but anyway. If you know anything about football, Alabama is like a powerhouse. They're in the national championship again. And if you were to, to ask, why is that the case? Well, they talk about Nick Saban. Probably you Tennessee fans call him Nick Satan. But anyway, is he's, he's the guy who says, if you need a real-life example of why this works, is they call it the process. Like, it's not about the goal. It's about the process. That's how they do things. So what if in our lives, instead of saying, all I want to talk about is where I want to be, what if instead we put our emphasis and our own energies on the habits of our everyday lives and trusted the Spirit to lead us to where God wants us to be? Well, the last point that will lead us to the table is this. And you know if I skipped over it for the sake of the sermon. How is this possible? To live with a posture as a living sacrifice where all of life is worship, no clocking in and clocking out? To, to, to not be conformed to the world, but to renew my mind for the sake of transformation? How is that possible? It's possible because the text begins with, I appeal you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. We can't do this in our own willpower. It is too much for us. Paul here is appealing, he is exhorting, he is telling us to be courageous. It is going to take courage to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. It is going to take brotherhood, sisterhood to do this. And it is going to take the mercies of God as the foundation of our following of Jesus into a life of growth. Paul is saying if there's not chapters 1 through 11, there's no chapter 12. Who you are always comes before what you do. You are in Christ. Guilt will not grow you. Not as a living sacrifice who lives all of worship. It might make you better. Shame might make you do things a little better. Fear might make you get things done. But it will not grow you as a worshiper. It won't. It might make you look better to other people. It might make you sleep better because you have a better conscience. But it won't change you. And in the end, it will probably just lead to resentment and bitterness and despair. But the gospel that Paul has taught through the Spirit in these first 11 chapters is the gospel that tells us that we have been saved already. You are fully forgiven. You are fully loved by God. And there's nothing you can do or not do that will change that. So you're not taking this posture as a living sacrifice, so now God will love you. No, you're doing it because He already loves you. You're not going to give your life to this process of having your mind renewed so that God will then help you as if I want to see you do your part so I'll start doing mine. No, you do it because He's given you the Holy Spirit to work in you. Because not only have you been saved, you are being saved. You don't live your life as one who is wholly given to God because you think, if I do this, then somehow one day I'll make it. No, but because the Gospel tells us that you will be saved 
Your future is secure. Your eternity is settled. Because of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You are filled with the Spirit. And Jesus will return. This gospel must motivate everything we do. Everything. The only other place in the New Testament where this word for transformed is used is 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You'll only be able to live as a living sacrifice. You'll only be able to keep renewing your mind if our eyes are kept on Jesus. Discipleship is not a spectator sport. So the question is, are you on the couch of Christianity watching others play the game while you dabble in it? Are you clocking in and clocking out as is convenient or comfortable for you? Or do you know who you are in Christ? Are you accepting the posture of a living sacrifice, engaging the process of being transformed, and believing the power of the gospel to never let you down until Jesus returns? Father, we thank you for the good news that is ours in Christ. May remember it and rest in it today in Jesus. Amen.